Good morning. It's Monday, and uh, I hope you had a good weekend. Uh, I know if you're here in Middle Tennessee, kind of around the Nashville area in particular, we had a bit of a frog strangler yesterday. High winds, lots and lots of rain, sheets blowing at 70 miles an hour in some places. Uh, it was a little rough. We were actually at a bookstore yesterday, and had this, lights went out, and uh, you could see the like a monsoon blowing by kind of a thing. So pretty hefty. Hopefully all are okay. I know we had... Uh, some of our friends actually experienced some damage, and so we're praying for them and pray that you're okay as well. Um, okay, well, this morning we're going to go ahead and jump into Mark chapter 1, where we left off last time. We finished up with verse 20 last time after Jesus had called his first four disciples, Peter and his brother Andrew, and then another pair of brothers, James and John, uh, who are very significant throughout the gospel narrative. Uh, we, Peter, James, and John in particularly so, as they would become his inner circle for all practical intents and purposes, and we're with him on some very significant events, uh, just the three of them with Jesus. And so uh, we'll see more of that as we go through the gospel. But uh, this morning, we're going to go ahead and move into verse 21. So let me go ahead and read. In verse 21 of Mark, chapter 1, uh, Mark records that then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And so Jesus now begins to more fully enter into his public ministry. And here Mark records how he moves into the area of Capernaum, which is a city in an area sort of toward the most, almost the most northern point of the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum becomes almost kind of like a, a home for Jesus in, in a significant part of his ministry. And so he spends time here. Uh, and of course, he spends time around the Sea of Galilee in various points. But Capernaum figures prominently in, uh, in Jesus' life and ministry. Now, it is, uh, what we notice here is that he goes into Capernaum and immediately, there's that word immediately again that we see in Mark's gospel, on the Sabbath, he enters into the synagogue and taught. And this would be a common thing for Jesus. As he begins to teach, he goes to where they are. And on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, uh, he would go in and he would teach. Now, we don't know what he taught in this particular instance, but we, uh, if we borrow from uh, Mark, we have an example of the kind of thing that he likely began teaching in his ministry at the various synagogues, certainly in the one there where he shared from Isaiah's, uh, Isaiah's uh, prophecies, specifically about the Messiah. And, uh, and having read that uh, uh, passage, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and uh, this messianic uh, prophecy of Isaiah's had them no doubt on the edge of their seats. It was silent. And all of a sudden he said, this day in your hearing, this is fulfilled. And people began to scratch their heads and marvel at what he was saying. He's claiming to be the Messiah and all of this. Well, uh, Jesus, of course, is moving through the region. And as he's teaching, he is sharing about how it's important to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so um, in concert with this, he is declaring himself to be Messiah. He's telling people to prepare their hearts and all of these things. And so we have some idea of what he may have been talking about in the synagogue. Um, we don't know specifically, but what's interesting there is that he spoke with authority. Mark does key in on this. He spoke as one with authority and not like the scribes. Now, the scribes taught well. They taught informatively. They taught, uh, in many respects, so many things that were right out of the Old Testament scriptures. Um, but at the same time, they had sort of a way of approaching um, their teaching that was apparently uh, where Jesus was fundamentally different than the way that they did. 
Typically, uh, you know, from various sources, we, we get the sense that when uh, scribes or Pharisees or other teachers would teach, oftentimes they would share uh, the biblical truths that they were sharing, but they would always rely on verification of their teaching from other teachers. Rabbi so-and-so said this, or so-and-so said this, and so they would sort of, um, you know, uh, validate their teachings by, by connecting with other teachers who held the same views. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, did not appeal to other people's authority. As a matter of fact, he did something quite contrary, and this is the kind of thing that no doubt struck them in the different way that he would teach. Uh, he would say things like, you have seen that it is written, you shall, not, uh, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you that if you hate someone, then you've as well as committed murder. Uh, you should not commit adultery. You've seen it written, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. And so, um, whereas the Pharisees, when they would talk about, uh, you shall not um, murder, you shall not commit adultery, they would then very likely, based on what we know about their, uh, their activities, their writing, their style and such, they would add all kinds of rules and regulations on these things so that the people would not only know the law, but they would also be given all these different rules and regulations to help them not break the law. Uh, and so they would be piled up with all these things. But Jesus instead went the other direction. Uh, when he would talk about how you shall not murder, he would, he would not give them all kinds of additional things to do, but rather he would dig deeper into it by simply saying that the heart of the problem is actually a problem of the heart. It's not just the act activity or the action that you commit that is the sinful thing, but rather it is also the fact that that kind of thing exists in your heart to begin with. And he would address the very core of the issue in his teaching. And this was different than the way the Pharisees and the scribes would teach. And so uh, they recognized this. The people did as they heard him teach. And so as this was going on and as he was teaching, they were astonished at this. They were kind of mesmerized by the way he would approach. And there is something beautiful about the way Jesus cuts right to the heart of the issue in so many of these things. Uh, and he gathered quite a following because of this. And so... They, uh, he taught them with authority, not as the scribes. Now, that wasn't the only thing on this particular day in the synagogue that was going on. It continues in verse 23, where Mark says that now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. When the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And then they were all amazed, and so that they were questioning among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine or teaching is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the regions around Galilee. No doubt. Well, so here he is in the synagogue, and he is teaching with authority, and as he is, there's a man in the synagogue who has demon-possessed. He has an unclean spirit. Now, what we don't see here is, how long has this guy been coming to synagogue with an unclean spirit, and nobody either recognized it or did anything about it? Um, it may have been just that day. If that particular guy who was demon-possessed walked in, that demon was about to have a really bad day all of a sudden without realizing it, or had he been coming there for a long time, but just nobody noticed it or recognized it. Uh, but when Jesus showed up, the demon within him recognized immediately who had walked into their midst and he acknowledged him, not just as Jesus of Nazareth, the man who walked into the synagogue that day, but also as the Holy One of God, deity himself, the chosen one, the anointed of God who is there in their midst. And, uh, and the demon recognizes this right away. You know, um, 
I don't believe Christians can be demon-possessed. I don't think the Holy Spirit shares room and board with demons by any stretch of the imagination. However, people in churches, not everyone who goes to a church is necessarily saved. Not that everyone who's unsaved in a church is demon-possessed, but it is not unlikely that there are in fellowships all over the world those who are not in fact saved and who in fact are demon-possessed who are sitting in the pews unrecognized and unnoticed as they sit in churches. Uh, and it's important for us to acknowledge, without going into the whole spiritual warfare thing, to recognize that when Paul talks about it, or Jesus here deals with it, uh, we need to recognize that spiritual warfare and demonic activity is a real thing. We don't want to make the mistake of thinking there's a demon behind every rock and corner and crevice in the uh, in the world, but we also don't want to um, sort of dismiss it as sort of just being not a real thing. Uh, and as believers, you know, we in Jesus' name, have authority to stand against such things. Um, but we don't want to take it for granted and or take it as a light thing or presume it doesn't exist. It clearly does. We see an example of it here, and there's no reason to think that such a thing doesn't still go on today. Um, now, what's interesting in the way Jesus dealt with it, and one of the things that astonished them is that, again, with authority, he, he commanded this demon both to be quiet and to come out. Um, the demon, of course, recognized, as we said, who Jesus is, and Jesus told him to be quiet. Now, they said, are you, are you going to ultimately destroy us? You know, we know who you are. Why have you come? All these different things. Well, Jesus commands him to be quiet. First of all, uh, Jesus is on a divine timetable. You know, there are times when people want to kind of rush him in to become the king because they believe him to be the Messiah, and they're excited, and they want him to be king, but he doesn't go along with it in those instances until the very uh, moment that he's supposed to, when he ultimately actually sets up his, uh, his uh, presentation as being Messiah. But all the other times he doesn't do it because he's on, a, he's on a divine schedule. He's going on a timetable that is gonna move along at the pace that he determines and, and that, that you know, uh, God has determined throughout the ages. So now here he is. And so he doesn't, uh, in, in, in the demons declaring who he is, and pronouncing who he is. Uh, it's good that they acknowledge and, and, and make clear who he is, but he doesn't need the people rallying around him at this stage trying to make him king because even the demons acknowledge who he is. Plus, he doesn't need demons acknowledging who he is and advertising his ministry or anything like that. Um, but his time has not yet come, so he tells him to be silent. And he tells him, tells him or them, apparently there's either many demons in this person that are being represented by the one speaking, or this demon within him is sort of speaking for demons in general, recognizing that the Son of God has come. But in any case, uh, he, Jesus tells him to be quiet and to come out. And the demon convulses inside the man, and, and ultimately the man is, uh, you know, when we say convulsing, we just say that word and move on. But, you know, imagine somebody who's lost control of their bodies. It's stiffening up, and there's this struggle going on as the demon doesn't want to leave, but he has no choice. And so as the demon leaves... The man is left there um, free of this demon. And we don't see what happens after that really with this man, but we do know the people are astonished. And again, they're astonished because of Jesus' authority. The word authority shows up twice here in this section. And the authority that Jesus demonstrates here, again, is something fundamentally different than the way the Pharisees or the scribes or the other religious leaders would have in this kind of a scenario. The idea of an exercising of a demon was not unique to this circumstance. Others had exercised demons before. Um, but generally speaking, the idea of exercising a demon involved things like rituals and certain kinds of 
of, of phraseology and things like this, as you would say certain things at certain times after doing certain things, and the demon was supposed to have to obey uh, after performing those things and saying those things. Uh, but Jesus didn't practice any of that. He simply spoke, and it was so. And that was different. That was completely different. And the people acknowledged it and recognized, who is this that has authority where even the demons themselves are subject to him? Uh, the Pharisees later on would call him the prince of demons, you know, essentially call him the, the, the ruler of the demons and such a thing. And Jesus, of course, spoke to the illogic of that kind of a thing. But, um, but it's important to recognize this is now the first of a number of things that Jesus will do that demonstrate the authority that he has. He has the authority over demons here. He has authority over the natural elements, what we'll see as the gospel story goes on. He has authority over sickness and death and all of these things. It's not just that he has power, but he has authority. I'll explain the idea of authority here when we talk about Jesus as uh, we kind of bring this to a, to a close here for today. But there's two words that are ultimately defined as power uh, in the New Testament predominantly. One is the word dunamis, which speaks, which is where we get our word dynamite from. It speaks of this idea of explosive power, power on display kind of a thing that uh, is, is, again, kind of like uh, in a moment there's this power that is released or something to that effect. Uh, the other word is exousia, which is a word that speaks of authority, kind of a power. Uh, I'll always borrow from Tony Evans. If you uh, like Tony Evans, you're familiar with him. Maybe you've heard this illustration that he gave. But uh, dunamis is, if you imagine like a, a, a setting like a football game, uh, like an NFL game or something where you've got these big, huge players on the field and they're moving the ball down the field, uh, these guys are exercising what is called dunamis. They are explosively powerful in the moment and all this kind of thing. They're big and strong. But the referee exercises what's called exousia power. This is where this is a guy who's nowhere near as big as the football players, but he blows his whistle, throws the flag, he stands there in the striped shirt, so they recognize this is the guy who's got the power to stop the show. Okay, that's the power Jesus has. Of course, he has dunamis as well, but he has more than dunamis. He has authority. He is the one who ultimately calls the shots, and, and things happen when he says them because he has that kind of power, much more than just power granted to him to sort of do dynamic things but rather he himself, within himself, by virtue of who he is, as God, has authority. And so he speaks to the demons, and they have no, uh, they have no recourse but to obey. Um, and on this last note, um, recognize that when we talk about spiritual warfare in regard to God, uh, God is not duking it out with Satan. Jesus is not fighting demons, and there's any question of who's going to win. This is not some equally footed battle between the two. No, there is, there is no comparable, there's, there's no comparison. There's an infinity of difference between what we're talking about here when it comes to Jesus and demons, or when we talk about God in, in general and, and Satan in this cosmic battle. It's not really a battle in regard to God and Satan. Uh, there is no competition there whatsoever. And so when Jesus speaks, it's not like he's speaking and trying really hard. No, he just says, out, and the demon obeys. That's the kind of authority and power our Savior possesses by virtue of who he is and his own being. He is, he is, he is God, and nothing uh, is not subject to him. And so that being said, um, we're going to stop there for today, and we'll pick it up next time. And, um, and also, uh, we're going to be doing another prophecy brief soon, uh, which will probably be broken up into three brief 
sections um, uh, talking about what's going on in the world around us. Uh, and uh, we may start that tomorrow. So uh, I was thinking I might start today, but I'm doing a little bit more homework on it before we put it out there. So that being said, keep that in prayer if you would. I appreciate that. And um, by all means, if you want to comment or reach out or anything, you can do so in the comments uh, on the YouTube or on, uh, uh, I sound like an old man, on the YouTube or on the Facebook. But on either of those, you can comment and reach out or you can email us at ParsonsPad, uh, Brian Bachoshin at ParsonsPad.com or uh, PastorBrian at CalvaryChapelFranklin.com. And I'll be glad to correspond with you as well. So God bless you. Let me pray us out until we meet again. Father, we thank you so much for our, our time this morning in your word. We thank you that each day we can open your word and get some fresh manna, some fresh uh, bread, some fresh insight and nourishment for our souls. And so we just, uh, we never want to neglect that. But Father, we want to take time each day to spend time going through your word, getting to know you better, and here in the Gospels in particular, getting to know Jesus better. And we thank you that our Savior has that kind of power and authority. Father, we need not fear, knowing that the one who is our shepherd guards over us as his sheep and leads us, protects us, provides for us. Father, even when adversity comes, we can understand that ultimately he's using that for his purposes to mold us and make us into further into his image. And so we have no need to fear, but rather when we stay by the shepherd, we can walk in absolute confidence and security that we're in his hands. So thank you for this. And Father, we pray that, uh, Lord, until we meet again, you'd watch over us and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.